1: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: The Hargan women seemed to have it all.
1: We were blessed. My mom was amazing.
0: But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: Atlanta, 2003. It's an evening like any other in the Buckhead, a neighborhood renowned for its nightlife and debauchery. The streets are swarming with young people. Rap music blasts from the clubs and bars that line the block.
0: The music is crushed by the roar of engines, an armada of luxury cars. Porsches, Escalades, Lamborghinis ride up to the parking lot in front of a club.
1: The more streetwise partiers take one look at the cars and hurry on their way. The rest of the crowd remains hypnotized as a tall, handsome man steps out of one car. With his dark cornrows, Hollywood looks, and glittering jewelry, he has an air of dignity and menace.
0: The rest of the men behind him are all dressed exactly the same. Baggy jeans, black t-shirts, and diamond studded necklaces with the initials BMF.
1: The crowd parts in reverence as they make their way into the club. One passerby asks his friend, who is that? He responds, that's the dude, Big Meech, head of the Black Mafia family. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the ParCast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld
0: and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them.
1: This is our first episode on Demetrius and Terry Flennery better known as Big Meech and Southwest T. In the 90s and 2000s, they led the Black Mafia family, one of the biggest cocaine distribution rings in the U.S. This week, we'll explore how the Flannery brothers rose from simple street pushers to nationwide crime lords. Next week, we'll look at the investigation that brought the BMF tumbling down.
0: You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Castbox, or your favorite podcast directory.
1: If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five star review wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Now let's get back to the story of the Black Mafia family. Big Meech Flinnery partied hard. In 2003, He was 35 years old, but he hadn't slowed down since he moved to Atlanta 14 years ago. For the drug kingpin and music executive, business hours only started once the sun went down.
1: Meech made sure every member of his crew had their own bottle of Cristal Champagne. His brother Terry ran a tight ship, but he was back in Detroit. When Meech was out on the town, money was no object. The BMF allegedly grossed over 270 million dollars from their cocaine network, which stretched from Atlanta to LA to Detroit to Dallas.
0: While his private army partied, Meech scouted the club for any rappers worth talking to. If he could sign one big name onto his record label, everything else would fall
1: into place. Drug dealing was always a means to an end. What Meech really wanted was to be a hip-hop producer. He just needed one major hit, and once things took off, he could finally retire from the cocaine business and go legitimate.
0: He spotted someone across the club, young Jeezy. Meech motioned for him to come over into the VIP section. Jeezy's career was just taking off, and he had Meech to thank for it. The BMF had promoted his parties, passed around his demos, and funded his video shoots.
1: But still, Jeezy wouldn't sign with BMF Entertainment. Every label in the country was courting him, and Meech wanted to make sure he stayed in the running.
0: BMF Entertainment was hardly a big name. They'd only signed one artist to date, but Meech didn't give up easily. He'd always had to fight for what he wanted, and he was a hell of a fighter.
1: Before they were nationwide drug lords, Big Meech and Southwest T were just Demetrius and Terry Flannery, poor boys slinging cocaine on the streets of Detroit.
0: Their parents, Charles and Lucille Flannery, had struggled all their lives. Charles had grown up poor, but he had dreams of making it big as a musician.
1: When baby Demetrius was born in 1968, Charles knew he had to make a choice. He could stay in Cleveland, Ohio, and spend the rest of his life working a blue-collar job to support the family, or he could take a leap of faith and see what the music world had in store for him.
0: So, in 1969, the Flinnery family packed everything they owned into their car and drove to Detroit.
1: In the 60s, Detroit's music scene was booming underground garage bands exploded into prominence on the club circuit. Thanks to the city's biggest music label, Motown Records, R&B artists like Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, and The Supremes were breaking out of the local scene and into the Billboard Top 10.
0: It was Charles' dream to become a part of that world, but his arrival in Detroit was less magical than he'd hoped.
1: While the music scene prospered, the rest of Detroit's economy was in decline. The once thriving automotive industry was failing and racial tensions were pulling the community apart.
0: Segregation had long been an issue in Detroit and after a series of riots in 1967, things only got worse. White families fled the city, moving into suburbs. Black families were forced to stay in the cities where job opportunities were low, taxes were skyrocketing and crime was on the rise.
1: The Flannery's thought they would be trading up, but the poverty they faced in Detroit was even worse than it had been in Cleveland. A few years later, in 1972, their second son, Terry, was born, and with two children to feed, Charles couldn't wait around for his music career to take off. He took up a job as a steelworker, while Lucille stayed home and took care of the boys. After work, Charles liked to unwind by playing the blues. Demetrius took after his love of music, and as soon as he was old enough to hold a guitar, Charles taught him everything he knew.
0: The father and son duo joined forces with their church's gospel choir. Charles and Demetrius provided the blues guitar rhythm, and the choir adapted their hymnals to the beat. There was no doubt the family had talent.
1: But talent alone wouldn't pay the bills. One cold winter morning, when Demetrius was still young, he woke up freezing cold. The lights wouldn't turn on. The power had been shut off.
0: He grabbed his baby brother Terry and crept out to the living room. As he got close, he heard his mother and father arguing. He stopped and peeked around the corner.
1: Lucille had tears in her eyes. She was talking about the house worrying if they had enough money to keep it.
0: They heard the floorboards creaking and turned around. Demetrius told them the power had been shut off. Charles grimaced, got up, and went outside.
1: Charles grabbed his toolbox and climbed up the pole to the power line. The power had been shut off for a reason. They hadn't paid the bill. But if it meant keeping his family warm, he would find a way to get the electricity running no matter what it took.
0: This was a lesson Demetrius took to heart. By the time he was a teenager, he was willing to do anything to help raise his family out of poverty.
1: When Demetrius turned 14 in 1982, the family's financial situation hadn't improved. The Flannery's were always on the verge of losing their house. But now, Demetrius had a plan and it started with his friend Benjamin Blank Johnson.
0: Blank and Demetrius had been friends since they were eight years old. Like a lot of the boys from Detroit's rougher neighborhoods, Blank had started selling cocaine before he reached his teens. Street gangs liked to recruit children to deal on street corners because the cops were less likely to suspect them.
1: Demetrius wasn't opposed to his friend's activities, but he'd never wanted to get in on it himself. Every time he thought about selling drugs, he imagined himself getting locked up behind bars for the rest of his life.
0: But he was desperate. His family needed money, and he'd get it wherever he could. He went over to Blank's house and asked if he knew anyone looking to push or sell drugs.
1: From that day on, 14-year-old Demetrius was selling drugs on the streets of Detroit. He started out small, selling $50 bags of cocaine. Eventually, he saved up enough money to keep his parents' home from being foreclosed on.
0: But Demetrius wanted more. There was a new, insanely lucrative drug taking over Detroit, and Demetrius saw an opportunity for profit.
1: In 1982, crack was just starting to appear on the drug scene. Crack is essentially a refined version of cocaine with higher purity and stronger effects. It was easy to make, extremely addictive, and more profitable than regular cocaine. As the drug flooded through America's cities, a wave of crime followed.
0: Detroit was no stranger to crime. The mafia had been in the city since 1912, By the 70s, street gangs were on the rise, and by 1982, a gang called Young Boys Inc. controlled 80% of Detroit's heroin distribution.
1: Young Boys Inc. was planning to get in on the crack game too, but it didn't pan out. The gang was crippled by infighting, and by the end of 1982, all three of its leaders were arrested or killed.
0: The power vacuum they left allowed other gangs to move in, like the Chamber Brothers, Pony Down Gang, the P.A. Boys, and of course, the Black Mafia family.
1: Coming up, we'll look at how Demetrius Flannery became the notorious Big Meech.
0: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story.
1: In 1982, 14-year-old Demetrius Flennery and his friend Blank Johnson began to build their own cocaine empire. Demetrius roped in his little brother Terry, who was just 10 years old. They ran their drug operation from their parents' home off Edsel Street in southern Detroit.
0: On a typical day, Blank would arrive at the Flinnery house in the afternoon. Demetrius and Terry would be inside, listening to music or watching TV. Blank would greet his friends, then head into the kitchen, where he'd open the linen closet.
1: He'd reach inside a tiny hole in the far back wall of the closet, where they'd hidden a stash of cocaine. Blank would take an eight ball or three and a half grams and divide it up into seven tiny plastic bags.
0: Blank would say goodbye, head out onto the street and sell the bags for 30 bucks each. Once he was done, he'd come back with the money.
1: Demetrius would divvy up the shares. Blank would prepare another eight ball and out again he would go.
0: Pretty soon they recruited neighborhood kids as dealers to speed up the sales. Then they expanded into selling crack along with cocaine. Their strategy was working perfectly. By the time Demetrius was 16, in 1984, he dropped out of school to work full time as a drug dealer. Terry, who was 12, followed his brother's lead.
1: While Demetrius was more outspoken, Terry was a quiet mastermind. Even as a child, he was cool, calculating, and observant.
0: Even though he was four years younger, Terry was much bigger than his brother. He had a stone-cold face, one that only became more menacing after a fateful accident when he was a preteen.
1: Terry had been walking home through the rough streets of their Detroit neighborhood when a stray bullet from a nearby shootout whizzed past. It caught the right side of his head, damaging his eye.
0: He was rushed to the hospital. Doctors worked tirelessly to save his eye. But the surgery was botched. While they managed to save the eye itself, they damaged several nerves in the process. Terry could see, but for the rest of his life, his right eye would move on its own, sometimes getting fixed on certain points while the left eye focused on something else.
1: But there was a silver lining to the accident. Since the doctors had botched the operation, the Flannery's could take them to court.
0: The courts resolved in the injured young boy's favor. Terry won a huge settlement. Now he just had to decide what to do with that money.
1: For the next few years, Demetrius and Terry kept running their drug ring out of their parents' house. They were careful about their business and they managed to stay out of trouble. Neither of the Flannery brothers were on the police's radar at all until one night in 1988.
0: 19-year-old Demetrius was walking home when a cop car pulled over next to him. He wasn't doing anything suspicious, but they stopped and frisked him anyway. They found a small bag of weed and a concealed handgun.
1: He was arrested, but only sentenced to a year of probation. Demetrius knew if he was arrested again, it would be game over. His solution was to start carrying fake IDs.
0: Demetrius bought a number of stolen identities, all of which came with legitimate driver's licenses and social security numbers. Whenever he was arrested, he handed over a different ID, Rico Seville from Michigan, Ronald Ivory from Georgia, Andres Carruthers from California, Rico Santos from Tennessee. Surprisingly, he actually got away with it.
1: But his favorite alias wasn't a stolen identity at all. It was his new street name, Big Meech.
0: Demetrius had always planned on using Big Meech as his stage name if he ever became a music star. He might not be selling out concert halls, but he was making a name for himself. By the time he was 19, in 1989, Demetrius had abandoned his given name and was known throughout Detroit only as Big Meech.
1: To him, the name represented a chance at stardom. He was getting restless, stuck in the same poverty-ridden city he'd grown up with. Big Meech longed for something bigger, so he set his sights on a new city, Atlanta.
0: Atlanta was desirable for two reasons. First, it was a major junction for drug trafficking. Cocaine came into the country through California, Texas, and Florida, so Atlanta was a regular stop for drugs being shipped out to the northeast.
1: The second was that Atlanta was growing into the hip hop mecca of the United States. Up and coming artists like Lil Jon and T.I. had gotten their starts working the Atlanta club circuits and Demetrius dreamed of following in their footsteps.
0: So in 1989, 19 year old Meech packed up and moved to Atlanta. His brother Terry stayed behind in Detroit.
1: Meech set up his base of operations in the Buckhead a neighborhood known for its nightlife and partying. By the 90s, it was a major scene for hip-hop artists. And where there were hip-hop parties, there was bound to be a demand for drugs.
0: For Meech, this was the perfect opportunity to stir up business for his drug operation while also pursuing his dream of producing music. His long-term plan was to go legit and open his own record label.
1: Within a few months of coming to Atlanta, Meech was already hobnobbing across the club circuit. He was charismatic and well-respected among the city's drug dealers due to his reputation from Detroit. Though he'd only been operating for a few years, his name had already trickled throughout the country.
0: He met with dealers and offered to undercut his competition by selling cocaine at $17,000 per kilo, a big discount from the going rate of 20 to 25,000, It hurt his profit margins in the short term, but before long, he had a major foothold in the city's cocaine trade.
1: Meanwhile, Terry and Blank Johnson were stirring things up in Detroit. Terry finally came up with a plan for his settlement money, opening a car rental service.
0: It would be a legitimate business, but it would also serve as a transportation crew for their drug operation. By driving around, learning the city, figuring out the best routes and neighborhoods, they could get their product out more quickly and efficiently.
1: It was a bold idea, and it worked. Pretty soon, Terry was bringing in money hand over fist. His drug crews would drive throughout Detroit, dropping off packages and picking up money in neighborhoods all over the city.
0: Terry also had another plan in the works. Since crack was more pure and potent than powder cocaine, It sold for more on the street, so if they processed their cocaine supply into crack, they could instantly double their profits.
1: Terry was reaching his 20s, and he was even more clever and calculating than he'd been as a teenager. He set up specialized safe houses for processing their supply. He and Blank would start with a brick of powder cocaine, dissolve it in water and baking soda, then boil it down into solid rocks.
0: When the process was finished, they'd turned a $20,000 kilo of cocaine into $40,000 worth of crack.
1: Through the 90s, Terry managed the cooking and distribution in Detroit, then shipped some of the product down to Meech, who handled the distribution side of the business in Atlanta. It was similar to how things had worked before, but on a much bigger scale.
0: But Meech still wasn't satisfied. His suppliers were reliable, but he knew he was paying a markup. If he could find a way to cut out the middleman and get his cocaine directly from the source, he'd be one step closer to the top.
1: In the mid-90s, Meech got a call from his brother Terry. The first thing Terry asked him was, you remember Waniac?
0: Wainiac, or Wayne Joyner, had been working with the brothers since Meech was still running coke in Detroit. He'd just come to Terry with an intriguing business proposition.
1: Waniak had connections in Southern California who reported directly to the Mexican drug cartels. They were looking for new distributors to move their cocaine across the country. Waniak's guy wanted to meet with Meech and Terry as soon as possible.
0: Meach jumped at the opportunity. The two brothers traveled to Southern California where Waniac introduced them to Daniel Hugo Corral.
1: They sat down and Hugo launched into his proposition. He told them, we need good people. From what I hear, you two are pretty damn reliable.
0: He leaned in and got to the bottom line. His sources would sell them pure Colombian cocaine for $14,000 a brick.
1: The brothers were stunned they'd been paying $20,000 per kilo before this. Between the lower price and the higher purity, they'd be majorly increasing their profits.
0: Meech reached out and shook Hugo's hand. It was a deal.
1: From then on, Meech and Terry had more cocaine coming in than they'd ever dreamed of. The drugs would come in through Mexico to California. From there, Hugo would ship them out to labs the brothers operated in Detroit and Atlanta.
0: They set up their drug labs in swanky mansions in upscaled suburbs of Detroit and Atlanta, places where the cops would never think to look. Inside, the houses were outfitted with special air filtration systems, so the cocaine dust wouldn't get them high while they worked.
1: The workers wore jumpsuits, goggles, and gas masks to avoid contamination. Their task was to remove 125 grams from each kilo brick of cocaine and replace it with a liquid filler.
0: They mixed the cocaine and filler together in a food processor, then spooned it into a mold. Then they used a hydraulic press to shape the drugs back into a brick.
1: They took the leftover 125 grams they removed from each kilo and combined them into another brick turning seven 100% pure kilos into eight 87.5% pure kilos. Their customers were none the wiser.
0: Thanks to this process, for every 1,000 bricks the brothers received, they ended up with just under 1,150 bricks. If it was all sold to distributors at Meech's old rate of $17,000 per kilo, They would make a net profit of over five million dollars for every thousand kilos they purchased. That'd be about eight million dollars today.
1: And for the portion of the supply that Terry turned around and cooked into crack, the profits were doubled.
0: But with all these drugs flowing in and out, the boys needed a better way to secure their product, something that could help them avoid the cops even if their drivers were pulled over. As always, Terry had an idea.
1: Sometime in the late 90s, Terry was introduced to a man named Tremaine Kiki Graham, who owned an auto shop in Atlanta. Kiki invited Terry to come by and check out something he'd been working on.
0: Kiki led Terry through the shop, then stopped at a van and opened the door.
1: He had installed special dead switches in the sunroof button, defrost button, and parking brake. By pressing the right combination, a hidden compartment would open, big enough to fit dozens of bricks of cocaine. Terry loved it.
0: Terry invested $250,000 into Kiki's auto shop. In exchange for access to his fleet of specialized cars, Kiki made sure they had anything they needed, limos, vans, big rigs, trailers, and more.
1: While Terry locked down the vehicles, Meech focused on recruiting drivers, he recognized that the drivers were taking big risks, so he rewarded them handsomely, between $8,000 and $25,000 for each trip from California to Atlanta, depending on the size of the cargo.
0: At the time, most drug gangs operated like old-school mafias, essentially calling in favors from all their members in exchange for protection. Meech and Terry opted to run their drug network like a business, compartmentalizing roles and duties, as opposed to having everyone do everything and making sure everyone was compensated fairly.
1: As usual, Terry handled most of the business in Detroit, while Meech stayed based in Atlanta. They were still working together, but their two factions were growing more and more distinct.
0: Meech tried to keep his work as discreet as possible. He refused to handle any transactions directly, Instead, he relied on his second-in-command, J-Bo Brown, to interact with the dealers and pass down his commands.
1: As a result, Meech became a sort of mysterious mob deity to his crew, a shadowy figure only the most trustworthy were allowed to meet.
0: Terry took on a more direct approach. He personally made sure deals went down correctly and checked in on the labs to make sure everything was running smoothly. He had his own second-in-command, Eric Slim Bivens.
1: As their operation grew, the Flannery brothers started shipping their cocaine out to dealers all over the country, not just Atlanta and Detroit, but everywhere from New York to Florida to Kentucky.
0: In St. Louis, they partnered with a gang called the Sin City Mafia. The gang's leader introduced the Flannery's to another auto broker, Doc Marshall, who could provide them with even more delivery cars.
1: Doc was dependable, thorough, and well-organized. Meech liked him immediately. Eventually, Doc was promoted from car dealer to something like the CFO of their cocaine corporation.
0: Doc made spreadsheets, kept logs, organized shipments, and even helped the brothers set up money laundering schemes to make their tax returns look legit.
1: Thanks to Doc, Meech and Terry's operation was growing faster than ever. But as their business grew, so did the danger.
0: Up next, we'll see how Meech and Terry rose to the top, even as their empire was on the verge of crashing down.
1: Now, back to the story. In
0: 1998, DEA agent Jack Harvey was assigned to investigate the murder of an informant by the name of Dennis Kingsley Walker.
1: Walker had been arrested on drug trafficking charges in 1994. He cut a deal, testifying against his associate in exchange for a lighter sentence.
0: Not long after his release in October 1997, Walker stopped at a hotel bar in downtown Atlanta, After a few drinks, he got into his car and headed home toward the Buckhead neighborhood.
1: He didn't notice the car following behind him.
0: As Walker was pulling off the interstate exit ramp near Buckhead, another car slowed beside him. The window rolled down, and before Walker could react, he was shot and killed.
1: No one saw the driver. Agent Harvey plumbed the DEA's network of informants and by January 1998, one of the informants had heard a rumor that Walker's killer was a man known only as Meech.
0: Harvey did some digging into this mysterious Meech. For over a year, he gathered evidence, talking to every informant he could find. He found a few clues. Meech split his time between Atlanta and Detroit. He used a litany of fake names and IDs, and in early 1999, an informant finally identified Meech as a drug distributor who'd been on the DEA's radar for years, Demetrius Flannery.
1: The DEA never found any evidence linking Demetrius or anyone else who went by Meech to Dennis Walker's murder. That case was never solved, but Agent Harvey already had his sights set on a different target, taking down Demetrius and Terry Flannery's drug operation.
0: By the year 2000, Big Meech was riding high. He and Terry had established a national cocaine network with cells in every corner of the country, from California to Florida, to Ohio, to Mississippi. With both their crews combined, they had over 500 members working under them.
1: Meech and Terry were well on their way from mid-level distributors to nationwide kingpins. To mark the occasion, Meech decided it was time to give their organization a name. From now on, they were the BMF, the Black Mafia family.
0: The name was meant to represent where the boys came from and how their organization was one family. But some of their associates saw a second meaning. BMF also stood for Big Meech Flinnery.
1: Pretty soon, the BMF became the most powerful force of the Atlanta underworld. Meach was discreet when it came to business dealings, but he lavished the spotlight. He made sure everyone knew who he was and what he was worth. He rolled through the Buckhead in luxury cars, decking himself out in diamond necklaces and gold chains.
0: His crew wore custom made BMF jerseys and pendants. He bought them their own cars, unlimited champagne at the city's best nightclubs, anything they wanted. The message was clear. If you could prove yourself to Big Meech, you were set for life.
1: Those under him followed his orders to the T. There was but one rule in the BMF, death before dishonor. If you ever snitched, you would be excommunicated and then executed.
0: But those who expressed their absolute loyalty were allowed into Meech's entourage. By the early 2000s, when he was in his 30s, Meech was a fixture of the Buckhead club scene. So long as a venue had good music and celebrity guests, Meech was there.
1: He was the life of the party. Sometimes he'd arrive at the club with 20 of his associates, rent out the VIP section, and give everyone thousands of dollars in cash. By the end of the night, it would all be blown.
0: According to lore, it was Big Meech who first coined the term, make it rain.
1: Anyone who tried to start trouble with the BMF came to regret it. One member recalled, You'd get swarmed. People didn't realize just how many of us there were in the club.
0: In the early 2000s, Meech was leading an entire army of drug traffickers. But deep down, he still secretly yearned to go straight. He thought back on the reason he'd come to Atlanta in the first place, to break into the hip-hop scene.
1: In Meach's mind, it was a natural progression. Grow up in the rough streets, deal drugs, become a star by rapping about it. He'd never stopped practicing music, and now that his drug empire was up and running, he wanted to use some of his profits to start performing and producing rap music.
0: In 2003, Big Meach incorporated his own music entertainment company, BMF Entertainment, At the time of its incorporation, the music label only had one artist to its name, Blue Da Vinci.
1: Barima McKnight had moved to Atlanta for the same reason Big Meech had, to break into the music scene. He took on the name Blue Da Vinci, played throughout the club circuit, and caught the attention of the man who was always listening from the VIP section,
0: Big Meech. Meech invested heavily into promoting blues music, hoping he'd be BMF Entertainment's ticket to legitimacy. Sadly, Blue wasn't taking off.
1: So later in 2003, Meech turned his attention to another artist rising to the forefront at the same time, Young Jeezy.
0: Jeezy had sold tens of thousands of independently produced mixtapes across Atlanta. He still wasn't signed with a label, and Meech tried to swoop him up before it was too late.
1: Meech and Jeezy had become close friends. Jeezy never signed with BMF, but he did collaborate on music videos with Blue Da Vinci, which brought the BMF label a bit of recognition.
0: But while Meech focused more and more on his music, Terry was more concerned with keeping up their drug trafficking. In 2001, he moved to California to keep a closer eye on their cocaine shipments.
1: Terry was growing frustrated with the attention his brother was drawing to himself. He didn't share Meech's attitude that they were invincible, but no matter how much he pleaded, Meech kept spending thousands of dollars at clubs, courting celebrity friends, and doing everything possible not to stay under the radar.
0: Terry griped to their associate, Doc Marshall. He's going to get us all caught, man. I wish he'd cool it.
1: He was right. While Meech was making it rain, the DEA was on their way to Atlanta, one step away from taking them all down.
0: Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore how the Flannery brothers became divided and how a decade-long DEA investigation finally brought the Black Mafia family down.
1: You can find Kingpins as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory.
0: Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review.
1: We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Michael Pindis and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.